A written transcript of this episode is provided by Starburst. For more information, you can see the show notes. Welcome to Data Mesh Radio with your host, Scott Hurlman, sponsored by Starburst. This is Adrian Estala, VP and Field CDO at Starburst and host of Data Mesh TV. Starburst is the leading contributor to Trino, the open source project, and the Data Mesh for Dummies book that I co-wrote with Colleen Tarto and Andy Mott. To claim your free book, head over to starburst.io. Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Hurlman. I started this podcast as a place for practitioners to get useful information about Data Mesh, and we're at over 200 episodes. I've now left Data Stacks, you know, thanks for all their help in founding things, but I've left to start Data Mesh Understanding, which is also helping practitioners to get to the information needed to do Data Mesh well. We have free implementer introduction and roundtable programs, in addition to the more advanced yet affordable offerings. So please do get in touch if you're looking for more information on how to do, how to approach Data Mesh. Just check datameshunderstanding.com for more info. There's also a helpful organization of past Data Mesh radio episodes there if you want to dig into specific topics rather than digging through 200 different episodes. So with that, let's hit the funky intro music and listen to what you'll hear about in this interview episode. Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? I interviewed Jill Maffeo, Senior Data Product Manager at Vista. Before jumping in, Jill, Jill gives a lot of very useful examples of outcomes they've been able to drive that could be abstracted to apply to your own organization's business challenges. Outcomes like better customer segmentation, faster time to launch new offerings, etc., if you are having difficulty with stakeholder buy-in, especially for someone in marketing, this episode could help you frame things in their language. So some key takeaways and thoughts from Jill's point of view. Number one, quote unquote, when you're thinking about interoperability, it's just playing nice, right? If you think of interoperability as a key part of your culture, it's easier to implement. Let people know why interoperability is good for them and the whole company. Number two, Taxonomies help drive interoperability because there is already an established language, even if things don't fit perfectly. New concepts can emerge and your taxonomies should change, but it makes the interoperability discussions have at least a common starting point. Number three, taxonomies are a living thing. Make sure they aren't overly rigid and be prepared to continually evolve and improve them. Number four, Within your taxonomy structure, if there is a reason for things to be unique for a domain or use case, that is okay. Look for potential ways to also convert that data to best fit your taxonomy, but you don't want to force a, a square peg through a round hole. Number five, taxonomies really start to add a lot of value at scale. They are somewhat costly upfront with likely moderate return on investment early, but if you do them right, 
they will pay back a, a lot as you move forward. They make historical analysis, especially with interoperability, far easier you know, once you come to that because you've done the work ahead of time. Number six, taxonomy, when done well, is about balancing standardization and flexibility, much like most things in data mesh. It's about finding the right balance for your organization. Number seven, most customer journeys are cross-domain. The more you make data, domain data interoperable, the more insight you have into the customer that can drive better business with your organization as a whole, instead of only trying to locally optimize value by domain. Number eight, similarly, many executive questions and desired insights are not exclusive to a domain. Can we get to answering their questions much more quickly and completely? What value would that drive? Number nine, to get funding for longer-term initiatives with a payoff down the road, you know, something like taxonomies, look to directly attach your work to an exec or multiple execs strategic goals. Make it easy for them to see why what you're trying to do will be of value to invest in now rather than later. Number 10, if a line of business isn't ready to engage on a key long-term strategic goal, like very rich, rich metadata, look for places to make progress that you can control. That way you can capture more value from data being generated now. So when you look to re-engage, there is more incentive for them to, to actually kind of join the party. Number 11, when re-engaging with a team that declined to work with you the first time, look to use as much empathy as possible. Yes, they said no, but now is the time to say welcome to the party and invite them in. Not, you know, I told you so, only great, how can we help? Number 12, it's easy to lose sight of differentiation in metrics. With a good taxonomy and metadata strategy, you can differentiate better between actions, such as not how many emails did you send, but what type and why. Five marketing emails in a week is probably bad, but four order-related emails and one marketing email isn't, right? That stuff type, that type of stuff really matters. Number 13, it's okay and probably advisable to have your taxonomy and tagging be able to serve multiple different use cases, multiple different perspectives. You know, for Vista, a postcard and a wedding invite look the same to manufacturing but are marketed very differently. Number 14, a potential way to entice people to participate earlier in a data mesh journey, you know, let them know they will have more say and influence on the general choices. However, you still want domains that are just starting to participate to know that you want their feedback and that their voice also matters. Number 15, think about building interoperability like building a structure. You need everyone coordinating. You want the electrician and the plumber to do their work before the drywaller. Redoing the work instead of setting your build schedule in place doesn't sound like a good idea. 16, focus on getting your standards in place for interoperability, right? One note that I would have here is no one is publishing their standards and this really does need to be done. So if you're creating your standards, you know, you should do that early according to Jill and I, I agree. But if you're doing that, please do publish those. 
Number 17, when picking early use cases, potentially look for complementary use cases where having information needed for each individual use case can power even further use cases. 18, good, even if only rudimentary, taxonomy and tagging lets you easily see how things have changed over time without having to manually stitch data. It also lowers the barrier to external domains leveraging your data. Number 19, a key benefit of taxonomies is the ability to tell richer stories. You have data across many different domains or business outcomes, but you can see how they interplay. Number 20, controversial point here, standard tagging and taxonomy can remove and even prevent tech debt, partially because it prevents some manual stitching of data. And finally, number 21, a good check for teams helping manage a data product portfolio is to take a few stakeholder questions and use what's available to try to answer them. How is the user experience? Is the information easy to ex- understand, etc.? Okay, enough of just me. Let's hear from our awesome guest in this interview episode. Very, very, very excited for today's episode. I've got uh, Jill Maffeo here. She's the Senior Data Product Manager at Vista, and we're going to be covering some some really interesting topics, some of which we haven't covered um, all that much in depth on, on the podcast thus far. So I'm excited to kind of learn more of, about this, especially we're going to be talking about taxonomies and data mesh. And I literally, you know, uh, I... I'm always kind of confused about the word taxonomy because I always think it means far more than it does. So I'm excited to even uh, start to, to talk about that a little bit. And then we're going to talk as well about how kind of related to that is how important interoperability is uh, for getting the value out of data mesh and kind of what interoperability kind of means because it's a nebulous term within data mesh. And some people are really worried that it means you have your singular schema that everything has to adhere to, like we've had with the data warehouse. And, but we have to kind of keep interoperability with loose coupling. And then we'll talk about kind of the idea about building a suite of data products because this suite of data products it's going to support more and more use cases and, and how you evolve that and think about kind of extension versus um, a new data product. And, and as part of that, we'll also talk about how you bring on additional um, users to an existing data product and how that works and how that's worked in practice and how, how you think about <laughs> if you had your druthers, what would that be? So um, Jill, long introduction, but uh, very excited for this. So if, if you don't mind, before we jump in, could you give uh, people a little bit of an introduction to yourself and then we can jump into the conversation at hand? Absolutely. Excited to be here. Um... A little bit about me. So I am a data professional in the Boston area. I came from a little bit of a non-traditional background when we think about data and analytics. I was a Spanish and communication double major at a liberal arts school here in town. Um, after going through a couple different internships, taking some 
research methods classes. It did kind of come time to find a job. Um, I was looking into marketing roles, business roles, and was pitched an analytics job by a company um, out of Brockton. And I was uncertain about it. Uh, I had conversations with my parents and my mom very succinctly told me that I'd been an analyst since I was three. I was a why child. Uh, I feel bad for her, but she did a great job. Um, And so now I have taken the opportunity to really lean into some of that curiosity and really find a foothold in the technical aspects of being an analyst over the past I don't know, eight or so years. And then in the last few years, I've kind of made that jump from being a technical professional to being a technical product owner. Um, so I now manage uh, a team of products that span the gamut between data ingestion, data curation, metadata curation, uh, and creation, and also uh, upper funnel uh, portfolio around measurement and insight from a demand perspective. Um, So the analytics that I kind of dove into and learned over the past almost decade uh, is now paired pretty well um, with that old communications degree. And so storytelling and influencing and really figuring out how to lead that portfolio with stakeholders uh, are areas where I am looking to grow. Well, and and I think that's a thing in, um, in data. A lot of folks want to just, I, I want to be right about the information. I want to be right about the data and that there's nothing else. And and so, yeah, I think those uh, skills, but yeah, I, I had the same thing with my my folks of, but wait, that doesn't make any sense. That doesn't make any, and, and you know, a five-year-old telling you that doesn't make any sense, especially when something does make sense and they just don't have the context. That's, <laughs> I don't yes. envy my, my, my folks from back in the day. Um, I'm also a very high context individual. So yeah. I was a joy. Let's put it that way. <laughs> So yeah, and I, I'd stay. I, I still am in that mode sometimes. But um, so let's talk about taxonomies and what you mean by taxonomies and data mesh. You know, taxonomy is kind of defining things. Is kind of the the very uh, very very low brow uh, definition of it. But like, how do you think about what is a taxonomy? And then we can talk about like why this starts to matter. And you you talked with me in the pre-call about how you want to start doing this work as early as possible because it does pay off, but it's one of those long fuse kind of uh, explosion of value and that you can also set yourself down a path where it gets harder and harder to circle back on this. Yes, taxonomy Taxonomy and data is a really interesting thing for me. I think ultimately is it it's an incredible balancing act, right? It's the ability to balance between standardization and flexibility. So every single team has something that they're probably going to want to track over time. Um, and when you are thinking about tracking something over time, it helps to be able to talk about the same concept, the same over time as well. So when we think about something as straightforward as a product hierarchy, right, that in a sense for me is taxonomy. So if we have, um, so at Vista where I work, we sell a lot of custom print materials as well as some design and digital products. And so when we think about a product hierarchy, you go down to the product name, so you have a postcard, and then you may go up and say, okay, 
these are all of the things that are like postcards. Here's the flyers. We're going to group those under something called marketing materials. And while that taxonomy takes some time to make sure you're tagging all the things and you're aligning all the things and you've come up with the groups that make the most sense in context over time, it means that when you add a new product, you can understand over time how marketing materials has changed, how it's grown, how it's shifted, and you don't have to be doing all of this stitching all the time on the back end. You remove a lot of technical debt when you do standard tagging and taxonomy so that the insights that you're generating and the stories that you want to tell have a much lower barrier to entry for teams that are especially outside of your team that have less of that expertise in context. So being a high context individual, as I've mentioned, um, taxonomy kind of fits right in there. So you're providing a framework for other people to approach your data, for other people to use your data over time, for you to see that change in a constant to the best of our ability, right? Because taxonomies are living things um, in that constant space. So that is one kind of big piece that I think about when I think about taxonomy. It's a living being, but it's really good from a context perspective to bring other people into your domain, to lower the barrier to entry for them to be able to access your data. Also though, it's the metadata from, you know, uh, again, that context space, but it's descriptive about what you're doing. So that's kind of an example on the product side when we're talking about descriptive about like what is actually happening. So in my team, we have a taxonomy about marketing placements. So when you send uh, an email at the door or you have a display ad or a paid search campaign, we want to be capturing information for those channels. So we're able to see that this email was for reactivation. It was sent to this market. And so over time, that email channel can understand what's been happening in their channel. But when we first got into the taxonomy game, we felt that it was very channel centric and we wanted to be more omni-channel because we wanted to lower the barrier to entry to look at the patterns across what all of the channels were doing. And so even though our stakeholders were independent channels and we were getting information from them on what they wanted to track, it was what I felt, you know, my team's responsibility to say, that's very interesting print team. You want to track something called format and the email team wants to track something called placement type. It's like, we're going to take a lot of these requirements that singularly could have been interesting individual channel taxonomies and level them up so that when an analyst who's trying to understand what's happening in a market that doesn't have context on individual print or individual email activity can say, hey, there's a table that describes what's been happening across channels. And like on the back end, my team is saying like, hey, format, which is coming from the print team should actually be called placement type along with these other channels. So it really, again, describes what's happening um, and describes the events that are happening within a domain. And it also lowers that barrier to entry, invites people into your space and, and that for me, then encourages other people to be tagging and tracking events in their space. Um, and we've seen that too in marketing placements. Like it's really interesting, but it's really what's happening in the channel. We want that to work with audience taxonomy. Who was sent? We want to be sent. We want to make sure that that works with campaign taxonomy. So like what was the purpose of these marketing placements being sent in the first place? And then you start to be able to tell much richer stories. Um, so in addition to performance narratives, 
um, that can be consistent over time, which I've really kind of focused on here. When you start to get the economies of scale on taxonomy, that's where you also start applying what taxonomy can do to models. Um, And that's where you really start to unlock some of the value. So yes, meta-analysis, performance, like that's a really interesting and critical piece of taxonomy's value. But once you start getting, again, those economies of scale, the standard uh, tracking over time, you get to be able to say, hey, you know, fellow data scientist on my team, not only do you get the events of what's been happening, like these 100 people were sent an email, um, these 1,000 people bought um, menus, you start to understand more about the event. And that helps you understand more about the personalization potential. Um, Because it's not just that these people received an email, it's that these people received an email that had this goal, that had these products, that was sent for this purpose. um, And then you get to understand customer reactions and experience in a much richer way. It sounds like basically what you're saying is there's the what happened, which taxonomy kind of helps with, but not really like a lot of that stuff's already done, even if you don't have the, the taxonomy as well. But what happened is just the beginning question that you have and that mm-hmm. all of the subsequent, okay, but like why or with who or what was the sequence or like why did you choose to target them in this way so let's look let's look at this campaign did not work out very well that's fine we tried something it didn't work very well why did we assume that this was going to work well or how did it underperform was it that we actually had a ton a higher click through rate than we thought but our our actual conversion rate was abysmal so was it the landing page or was it the, so it gives you even more ability to more granularly A-B test. And, you know, you might get yourself into the situation of you have too many potential questions to A-B test and you don't have enough traffic and things like that. I've, I've had that historically with some marketing stuff, but. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. The, the differentiation is the key. Right. So like looking historically, it's descriptive looking in the future, it's predictive. But that that differentiation is really, you know, what we're aiming to get to from a next level perspective and sitting there and kind of filling out all the metadata at the front end, you know, isn't always the the most exciting part. But um, as you said, it's a it's a slow burn. Um, But once you start getting this information over time, you can tell some really interesting stories. I think that's ironic that it's differentiation via taxonomy because taxonomy is about trying to find the same shared language. So it is, it is, it's about finding the shared language about differentiated events. Right. Which is, uh, yeah, it's, it, yeah, I find that to be really interesting. So, yeah. so it's always just a, one of those, uh, fun little weird quirks of, of how this works. So one thing that you just talked about and, and some other aspects of this, I see there potentially being a lot of pushback. So how did you think about driving buy-in and how did you think about, you know, you talked a little bit about this, of uh, this has to have value in, in the long run. So like, how did you, how did you get people to wait enough where the value really started to become very self-evident and that this does have a long tail? And like, how, how did you think about not just, you know, can you help people understand how they might drive buy-in if they're, they're bought in, but also like, 
how did you keep the momentum of it where it's not just, hey, uh, you know, building up the the enough force to do an initial shove versus mm-hmm. the, okay, we have to get the ball rolling and keep it rolling. Yes. Um, this has definitely been a long process and we're still on this journey, you know, at Vista, but we, we have made, you know, some strides. And when... How do we even start? So the first piece of this, uh, I saw that there was a lot of conversation happening in leadership around personalization. Um, and, you know, those are common discussions to be had in this day and age, right? Like, what can we know about a customer? How can we act on that so that, you know, each customer has a more relevant experience? And we had also been going through a bit of a replatform. So on the one sense, had to start a lot of things over. On the other sense, had a little bit of a clean slate to work with. Um, so, you know, pros and cons. So I reached out to some folks on my leadership team and talked about the potential for the investment in metadata. Um, so kind of the first initial like, hey, I think we should be talking about this. These are some of the ways it ties directly to the personalization goals that we have set for ourselves. Also, you know, kind of putting a bug in their ear to say, if you want to be investing in a model in six months and you want historical data for that model to be leveraging, then this is the time to be working on some of that metadata capture and curation. Got some, you know, buy-in from the sense of what are your use cases, right? Like what are the use cases? How do we tackle this? Like what what are the most important pieces of metadata that we need to go after first? So I did some, you know, conversations with some of the folks who are going to be running the models, some of the folks who are in the channels who would have to be kind of contributing some of this information, um, did a couple things. Uh, Ran a POC, like a proof of concept, tried to get the right people in the room, felt it was a lot of people. Um, We built out kind of what it would take to do it, what it would look like. And in that moment in time, um, you know, it just, it wasn't the right time for the business to engage on it, but we didn't stop. Right. So instead, I was like, okay, we've talked about, you know, what it would take to get all these teams together to get something like promotion in an email to work. Right. Which is we need promotion metadata, we need email metadata, and then we need the intersection of these things. But at the time, we were still developing like the promotion metadata piece and the channel metadata piece. And we hadn't yet gotten to the place where we had the, um, ability to prioritize these two working together because we were in the middle of replatforming. So I was like, okay, we've introduced the concept. We've talked about the value proposition. There's definitely some use cases on the table. What can I control? So I took a step back and I was like, in my team, we are working very closely with our technology partners. Let me have a discussion with them about what some of their goals are. And it turns out that some of their goals were automating and optimizing some of the kind of like placement services and the UI that the business was using to set up their campaigns. And those are the same services and UI where they're plugging in a lot of this metadata. So I worked very closely with a partner of mine in technology and uh, a really awesome technology squad. And we said, okay, can we actually get a little bit more out of this from an experiment? Can we both try to automate and improve some of the services from a campaign setup perspective to reduce some of the overhead operational costs. And at the same time that we're doing that, introduce a new taxonomy that's going to be much more standard, cross-channel, 
And then I would be involved in helping them with some of their stakeholder relationships, getting that data and presenting them with like our data and analytics view on what the taxonomy should look like. So it was definitely kind of a introduce the concept, talk about the effort. If you're not getting the buy-in on the effort yet, figure out what you can control. Then we had some really great early wins in that space. Like we were able to really cut down on the time it took to set up like a paid search campaign. Um, We were to cut back on some pieces of metadata that was a little bit misleading that we didn't want to use anymore. And then we kind of like opened the push back up again to say, hey, we've had some early wins. We're starting to see this data come in contextually over time, add value from a performance perspective. We re-engaged some of the folks um, that were building some of the models and they were like, we think it's getting closer and closer to time where we want to be investing in this. And while this was happening, because we'd had the wins in operational setup and we'd had the wins from a performance perspective, like getting a better meta analysis of what was going on in the channels, some of the folks in channel started to advocate for us as well. So it wasn't just like me going to my leaders saying like, I think it's time for metadata. We've now got behind us some of our stakeholders knocking on the same doors almost a year later. Um, But, you know, it's kind of that like we've really led up to it. We've really got the momentum going. Now also our stakeholders knocking on those doors saying, you know, we want to understand more about what's happening. Um, We want you to help us with this. Like, how do we move forward? So we're we're getting there and those, you know, not not kind of letting failure stop us, regrouping on what we can control, communicating back out early wins, re-engaging stakeholders. And now we are starting to see some, you know, key results around the ability to understand, you know, a new set of taxonomy that we need to develop around audiences um, and how that works together with some of the taxonomy that's a little bit more established, like the marketing placement taxonomy. So it, it was definitely a journey. We're definitely not um, off the ride by any means. Um, but it is kind of that just continued investment uh, in foundations and the communication on early wins that I think got us where we are. When you are re-engaging somebody, like they've already dropped some of the potential value, right? Because of going back through and re-tagging things and like all of those historically, it's it's difficult. They've already dropped some of that value. And you know, you mm. don't wanna you don't wanna go told you so or anything like <laughs> that. But you know, when the the somebody coming in today and saying, okay, we want to start engaging with this, like how do you again get that buy-in, maybe if somebody, are, are you now waiting for people to come to you rather than you going to them? Because what what I'm thinking of here is somebody saying, well, I wish I had the value from having done it already for this amount of time, but me starting now, I don't necessarily have the same value as if I had started it then. So like they then often try and push the work onto you to do that rather than you saying, here, we're going to give you the framework. We're going to give you, we're going to teach you how to do this. We're going to teach you how to fish, but we're not fishing for you. Like how, how do you balance all of that? Um, and, and, you know, sometimes you end up getting the, the work shoved onto you, whether you want it or not, but you know, like, how do you think about that? We think about it as a, as a partnership and we really take historical cases on a case by case basis. So Whenever someone comes and says like, hey, we're interested in this thing now, we kind of see what you were talking about. We're ready for it. The team's in a better place. Um, You know, first of all, there's, you know, a little bit of a celebratory dance to be like, we got another one. Like we got some folks on board. Like 
yes, it wasn't on, you know, day negative 365, but it's now day one for them. So how do we get them just as excited? Um, so there's a little bit of that. Uh, there's then the discussion of, you know, how are you trying to use this? What's the best path forward? If it's performance um, based, typically they're okay talking about a moving forward perspective. Um, so it's like, Hey, from this day forward, this is what it's going to look like. Sometimes if there's a specific experiment that's been going on and they need to do some back tagging, or if there's like, again, a model use case where there's some specific back tagging requests, again, we engage in that partnership to say, like, these are the ways in which we want to tag these things moving forward. How do these attribute, you know, what are the time periods that you want to be tagging for? What are the countries that you want to be tagging for? We help them identify what they may want to tag. And then we ask them in partnership to tag those things. And then we do some work to make sure that those are still, you know, attributed to the correct metadata in our products. Um, You know, it is kind of a little bit more manual, but to get the right use case and the right partner on board and to get them excited about doing this moving forward, we've found that those cases can, can be worth it from, uh, from an engagement perspective and from a future investment perspective. We just have to make sure, again, the value trade-off is there. Yeah, I think that ROI of, you know, there it's not just purely return, it's return on investment. And so you say, okay, I get that you want this historically, but if their return isn't there. Um, one one thing that we were talking about digging into a little bit, if, if you don't mind giving people a little bit of an example, so they're now bought in on, on this as well, of like, what were some, what was a question or a couple of questions that you were able to really dig a lot deeper on and maybe, you know, obviously not getting into any specific numbers, but like what that, that actually led to from a business outcome, not just an interesting insight, you know, a, hmm, that's kind of cool versus a, okay. And then like, and what, so what? Yes. So There's, as I mentioned before, kind of the channel optimization, performance optimization side of this. And then there's, you know, the where a lot of the economies of scale come into play is personalization and models. So from the performance side, you know, we have had some, you know, interesting takes on how to better balance the kinds of emails that we're sending to people. Um, Because when you're looking at when you're looking at email frequency and like how often you're sending an email to someone, it's a really difficult question when you don't know what the emails are. So like, how do you actually tailor frequency so that someone's getting the right amount of of emails without knowing that like, Hey, because that person ordered last week, they received five emails because they had an order confirmation they had a shipping confirmation. They had, um, you know, all of these different transactional emails that, you know, we want to know we're transactional so that we don't reduce their frequency from a promotional perspective the next week, because that was actually a signal that was legitimate and they should have been receiving those emails. So the channel optimization side of this, we've been able to, you know, add some of our metadata, including our channel hierarchy to the way that we think about um, email frequency. And if we get the right email frequency in place, we reduce opt-out rates. Um, So that, uh, again, without getting into numbers, can be uh, quite a boon for an email channel, right? If we get that right, because we understand what emails are being sent to a customer, not just how many, 
um, then we get to make smarter decisions around when they should get the next one and what it should be. Um, if you scale that up uh, a little bit, then you get into things like a next best action model, um, which is where we're really looking to find the business impact and the business value from things like metadata and taxonomy. So we're in some early stages of a next best action model at Vista. Um, and we now have that team, as you mentioned before, like coming to us versus us going to them. So we now have that team like going to channels and saying like, what are some additional differentiation that you can give us so that we can give you a better answer on what to do next across these channels for these customers. So we have, um, you know, some hefty dollar estimates behind what unlocking personalization can do for us. And we believe that next best action is a big part of that. And I believe that the next best action model is only going to be as good as the data that we can give it. Um, so those are some, you know, realer examples, like again, like really targeting and tailoring email frequency, um, getting better at omnichannel next best action um, that we are looking to be kind of the, the payoff in a lot of ways for the metadata that we're doing today. And I think there's another one again that we're just starting, uh, which is the audience taxonomy that I mentioned. So to, to build better audiences, um, it's good to know how those people were differentiated in their journeys up to the point in which you're putting them in an audience. So we can have better targeting, more relevant audiences, better grouping of those audiences uh, if we have a better understanding of what they've been doing, how they've been engaging, not just where. Um, and so early days on that one, but I'm excited to see how the different taxonomies uh, will work together once we really kick audiences into high gear. And like, I think at some companies, they might be having a domain that, that doesn't have like you're, you're, even though you're doing physical goods in, in most of these cases, it's still mm-hmm. mostly a digital company because it's about ordering and like, like there is fulfillment, yes. there is all that. But like so much of this is like um, kind of B2B and small B2B instead of like large transaction B2B and things like that. So mm-hmm. um, I think that, that people might be a little bit um, confused about like, when you think about your domains, especially your subdomains of your subdomain, like the smallest domains, like, can you give people a little bit of, of a view into that as we transition into talking about interoperability? Because, yeah. uh, you know, it's like, well, marketing is marketing is marketing. And it's like, well, probably a decent chunk of your, you know, you probably, I, I don't know, maybe you do have direct sales, you probably do for larger accounts, but it, so much of it is the email or other channels of marketing that you're doing. So like, is it that you have somebody that has emails that are about business cards and that you have somebody that's emails about flyers and those are just so people can understand. And and we can talk about like what you have to start to do for that interoperability between those, because as you said, people use different words, but like, do you have a universal ID? And like, how do you think about that? those aspects for purely cross, not just conceptually cross like data product stuff? Yeah, taxonomy right. is alive and well in, uh, in many domains. Sometimes you have to look a little bit harder, but there's always opportunities for it. So um, another example, and then like I'll kind of bring together maybe how these can be used in tandem. But like I used to be an analyst in our customer service space. 
And boy, like what we wouldn't give to have a standard set of reasons for why people call, reasons for why they got a credit. Um, you know, in addition to a lot of the hard metrics, like how long was the call? What was the customer satisfaction? Because then you can add so much more context to say, you know, when someone called because their order was late, their satisfaction is lower than when someone called, you know, to understand, you know, information about products that we might sell. And some of that you can read in and say, someone whose order was late is always going to be dissatisfied. So we can't maybe actually compare these two customer satisfaction scores, or maybe we do want to, and we feel we can get it up there. So those kind of differentiations and the reasons for why people are doing things um, is just as important as like why we're sending this email as to like why someone's giving us a call. Um, and being able to use that information in conjunction with taxonomies that live elsewhere, like in a design and content domain and space, like there's, there's metadata on metadata that you can get in terms of like content. Right. And when we think about content, it's, um, you know, this photo showed up like on our website, maybe also in a display ad, maybe also, you know, in a, um, shopping ad. And this photo had someone who worked in a bakery, had a yellow color scheme, um, had, you know, specific, uh, promotion details involved. You know, this was a, um, aggressive promotion. This was a less aggressive promotion, like all of these like hints, um, help us unpack like why someone might've reacted to it in a specific way. So we want not only, uh, you know, our content to be tagged with something like industry or occasion, right? So let's say we have, um, you know, Mother's Day, uh, a sale that we want to run for that. And we want the content in there to be tagged a certain way, or we have like an industry, like a real estate agent, right? So now we can take things like, Hey, when we understand, um, Let's take a restaurant tour because I've given this example before. So you have someone who's in our customer base as being uh, a restaurant owner. They typically order menus with us every six months, right? We start to also, when we get this sophisticated, see the absence of an event as actual data as well that we should be considering. Um, and so let's say they've ordered for the past you know, consecutive six months on a, on a relative life cycle cadence. We then see that it's month seven, right? So we see that it's month seven. If we're really just tagging events um, and we see that like maybe they open an email, maybe they, you know, put a new menu in their cart and they drop off, right? So like maybe we send them a drop off email. But if we get kind of just a little bit more sophisticated, we can say, hey, this person at about six months called us and they called us for the design reason of design services. And then, oh, that email that they opened, it was also about design services, which is helping them think maybe differently about their brand or maybe differently about the menus that they've been ordering in a relatively consistent cadence. And then the, uh, the product that they dropped off on cart, it was actually uh, a menu that is the exact same as the menu that they've been reordering every six months and a new one that maybe they aren't too sure about. So we take the metadata of like, hey, they called about customer services. The email that they opened was about design services. And then they dropped off. Do we send a drop off email or do we send a brand refresh email? Right. So it's like that information across all of these domains leads to a better outcome for the customer and leads 
to a better understanding of what their needs are. Um, and we can't do that very well, not only without all of those metadata being in place, but all those metadata speaking the same language, right? Because if we want to then build an email for them that is about a restaurant owner that's getting design services content, our like our dam where we store all of our content, right? If it's tagged with restaurant, but like industry somewhere else in our process is tagged restaurant owner. And we're trying to both understand how restaurant is doing across systems, but then potentially also assemble an email using restaurant across systems. And we're not tagging them properly. We're going to miss a bunch of connections, potentially miss a bunch of content that we could have leveraged or missed something about um, performance in that particular demographic because we're not tagging them together. We're not talking the same language. And so when we say industry at Vistaprint, like we have an industry taxonomy. And so we should all be talking about industry the same way so that when we're building an email, when someone's looking at content, when someone is like looking at performance in these demographic groups, we're all talking the same language. So you take that, that interoperability and you say, okay, yes, it's about systems playing well together. We've all learned those lessons from your kids. You got to play well together. And I'll talk about what that means in a minute, but it's also about a shared language. Um, this is not only context setting for humans. So you get to a shared meaning faster, which is really also a critical piece of data literacy. And again, lowering barrier to entry for our you know, stakeholders who are trying to consume this information from a lot of different domains. But it's also uh, lowering the barrier to entry for machine learning and building of um, kind of like automated building of content and campaigns and creation like that. Um, so definitely think about um, those standard languages that shared meaning. And then we'll talk about systems in a minute. Yeah, I think kind of an example, a, a, a simple analogy that came up was when people are talking about degrees, right? Like what is the temperature outside? You're you're talking about the same thing if you're talking Celsius or Fahrenheit or if somebody is being weird, then they'll be talking in Kelvin or whatever. And so you're yes. talking about the exact same concept, but it's not necessarily actually interoperable, even though the taxonomy is is interoperable or, well, the taxonomy is actually not interoperable in this case. It's that the the kind of tagging or the um, ID would be interoperable, but the actual tags are completely separate. And so I think a lot of what you're talking about there is that, yes, you want to have the systems be able to communicate with each other and combine data across. So like, are you doing that via the um, kind of standardized schemas or, you know, data modeling or things like that? But at the same point, it's also very easy to get yourself into trouble or it's very easy to lose out on a significant portion of the value if you're not focused on actually doing the right thing for that. Because it's very easy to, um, to think that you've, you've set yourself up for this interoperability, but it's not really the value add, the high value add. And if you just went, you know, okay, you, you went 80, 90% of the way there, but the big chunk of value, or there is still a big chunk of value by doing just a little bit of extra work. It's not a Pareto principle that you got 80% of the value for 20% of the work. You got 60% of the value for 80% of the work. Let's do the last 20% because it's got 
40% of the value. And is, is that kind of what you're thinking or is that what you're seeing actually happening or, or, and then like, let, once you've answered that, if we can transition as well into the, like, people are still confused about what does interoperability, like, what are you actually doing on that? Cause people want specifics, but like, yeah. I, I think from a conceptual standpoint, again, you're seeing the value from doing this. So like if, if people can get that, I think that's really helpful. Yeah, the value is definitely there. And it is, again, that I bring it back, that mix of standardization and flexibility. So like you, you need to get, you know, as much buy-in on the standard operating procedures from a taxonomy perspective that you can, but it also sometimes creates noise and pushback. If you do have a very specific use case that is important to be, you know, handled in a, in a slightly different manner. So like one example of that is the majority of the business is really bought in on the product hierarchy because it's how we merchandise products. It's how customers buy products. Um, it's how they search for them, but there is another, uh, way in which we think about products and that's from a manufacturing perspective, right? Uh, an invite and announcement may be printed on the same paper as a postcard. We merchandise them potentially differently, or they get different decoration techniques put on top of them. But from a manufacturing perspective, um, they just need enough of that paper, right, to be able to serve across a lot of these different products. Um, you know, a yard sign is a political sign, is a lawn sign, and maybe those are man- those are um, merchandised differently, but they're not sourced differently. Um, so. Yes, there is absolutely the case to get as many people behind and as much momentum behind these taxonomies as you can, but you, you do necessarily, you know, sometimes need to, to make those exceptions, but they still need to have a common ID so that you can always look and say, this belongs to this, this belongs to this, what's the conversion factor? So you talked about, you know, degrees. I think it's, it's like the metric system, right? If every, you know, cough, cough, almost every uh, country is working on the metric system, right? Um, You really get a lot of economies of scale from scientific studies, uh, you know, even manufacturing, right? Like we have to make different signs that say, you know, exit in this many feet or miles, but like everybody else gets to make signs that say this many kilometers. Um, And so, yes, as many people as possible on a, on a system. And then when you have true examples where there needs to be a separate solution, you still need to be thinking about those conversion factors. You still need to be able to have a common ground where you can always make that switch um, if you need to. Because again, there are, there are some legitimate cases out there and we don't want to exclude people. Um, but we do want to do our best to get to that common understanding to get the value. One question there is, is, you know, you talk to people who weren't bought in at the start and then mm-hmm. you, you, did you still have to uh, create such a way where you'd be able to, because th- where they, they could later be part of it, they could later participate because sometimes that you don't want to punish people for not doing it. But at the same point, you also don't want to do a ton of work simply if, uh, you know, and let somebody kind of off the hook who just said, no, you've got to do all the work and we'll just come in when the value is already there. Like, how did you think about balancing that? It's kind of an all boats rise kind of situation, right? So it's 
like, yes, there are definitely early wins. There are definitely teams that we've partnered much more closely with. So they may get a larger say in what the original taxonomy looks like. But when people do come on board, we still need to make sure that we're listening to their concerns because they may have thought of a use case that could incrementally improve the way that everyone is doing things. Um, we would just need to think about like the impact of making those changes. So yes, the early adopters get a little bit more say, I think, um, and what some of the dimensions are and what some of the values are, and that is a benefit for them. Um, but when people do come on board, like we want to make sure again that the the value proposition um, is there for them, but also any input and feedback that they have um, could just improve the the value overall of what we're doing. So, like we're considering, you know, thinking about what a taxonomy for like SMS and like text messaging looks like. And there's a team that's really really focused on using SMS from a transactional capacity. And then there's another team that's really interested in using SMS from a personalized um, promotional capacity. And one of those teams is a little bit further on actually making this stuff come to market. And so when we think about those two clients, basically of this taxonomy, you know, we want to build it so that it's flexible enough to reflect some of the promotional pieces of information that we want to capture, but we'll probably execute on the transactional dimensions first. Um, so it is that like, balance. Um, and there's definitely got to be some, you know, value out the door. But, uh, you know, listening when people are ready um, is important, too. Well, and sometimes people just weren't in a situation where they could have participated. They didn't have the time. They didn't. Yeah. Uh, or there was a change in the, the people that are leading it and all that fun stuff. So, yes. Uh, so uh, I did want to make sure we, we do talk about the kind of something that that's been in a lot of this throughout this conversation, but we haven't addressed it specifically, which is the suite of data products. And that like, when you're thinking about that suite, you know, are you, how do you think about building out the, the big set of them so that they can cover more and more questions, even if there isn't a direct use case, but you don't necessarily want to build ahead, but you kind of want to build it so that it, it can be extended to answer that question. And so uh, there isn't a specific question in there, but like is when people start to think about, you know, kind of phase two of their data mesh implementation, phase one is like getting a domain to have one or two data products and that you're kind of figuring out your interoperability and you're figuring out how you actually launch new data products. You're, you're in that phase two of going broad, going wide. And so you want to start to think about the when people think about products, uh, you don't think about each individual product. You think about your product suite coverage and and things like that, which is why I keep telling people product thinking, product thinking. Don't just think software. Um, but how do you think about the forward looking, and how do you think about assessing what you've got, and how do you think about like kind of launching new versus extending? I know there's like eight million questions in here. But <laughs> I want to start to dig into that and I'll ask more questions as you, as you say, uh, more yeah. interesting. So, <laughs> yeah, excuse me while I just push my glasses up my nose a little bit. Like, let me, let me, let me jump into interoperability. Let me geek out for a second. Um, so one of the metaphors that I like to use when I talk about interoperability and it does extend to products as well and how we think about our products being interoperable. Um, if you think about what it takes to like build a shop, build a shop, build a house, 
Um, you have a lot of individual domains in that space. You have electricians, you have plumbers, you have painters, uh, and they all have, you know, an incredible set of technical skills to offer. They all have, you know, ways in which they deliver value individually, but like, man, wouldn't it be nice to build this shop with them all working together, right? With them all kind of collaborating in a way where, um, the timing works out and everybody's using the same way to measure and everybody's, you know, kind of figuring out. Like, I'm going to build this wall. And like, instead of saying today, I'm going to have the electrician in this wall, and then I'm going to cover it up. And then the plumber is going to come in tomorrow, break down this wall, try to fit their plumbing into that wall around what the electrician did. Like, wouldn't it be nice to like, take that minute and say, hey, we're about to build this wall. Like, the electrician has to be in here. The plumber has to be in here. Like, how do we make this a better wall? Um, and so when I think interoperability of systems, I'm thinking about like, Hey, if we're building, you know, a campaign, like, wouldn't it be so great if the system that, you know, develops the metadata around, you know, um, the specific email that we need to send works hands off, you know, from a unique ID perspective um, and is interoperable with the service that is figuring out who needs to get that email from an audience's perspective and then that also works in a handshake with the um, place where we keep all of our content so that when we say this email is being sent to these people for these reasons, that becomes like a much more streamlined process. And we're not knocking down the wall every day to say like, oh, and fit the audience ID in there. Like, oh, and fit this content in there. Instead, we're saying like, we're, we're working towards like a, a world where these systems have the ability to give handshakes to say like, hey, like, I'm going to give you uh, a UTM ID, right? Like a, a, which is the ID that we use to tag a lot of our um, marketing placement metadata. And I'm going to hand it off to you, audience. Uh, and audience is like, cool, cool, cool. I'm going to take this and I'm going to take my content IDs. I'm going to build that together and kind of output something that is actually like viable from a customer experience perspective. So we are working on putting all of these things in a system so that the services themselves can play well together. Oftentimes that does mean the unique IDs being interchangeable, being able to work across systems. It's also, you know, a little bit about the metadata that we use that again, all the industry taxonomies across audiences and across content are working across, you know, the same language. So it's, it's that system where services can work hand in hand based on IDs, where there's a shared language and a shared meaning for these things. Um, and so that's a little bit about what I'm talking about when I'm talking interoperable systems. Beneath that, um, once you have a, a, you know, service built by a software engineer that's, you know, giving data to another service to deliver on a customer experience, on the back end, those data should be doing the same. So like when you capture data from the service that is building a marketing placement, those data should be interoperable with the output from the service that's creating like audiences as well. So any software as a service, like front end experience that is interoperable for the benefit of a customer should also be interoperable from a data perspective on the back end. Um, and in order to build products, like we need a lot of those domains to be, you know, working in some capacity in concert so that we reduce our tech debt. We don't have to manually code things. We don't have to, you know, code over things. We can leverage taxonomy from one place. We can 
um, have that interoperable data much more closely at hand. Um, and so then we build our individual products based on, you know, our own domain data and then interoperable other domain data. So that's how we get to our products. Um, and then there's how we get to from product to portfolio. And, and I don't want to put words in your mouth here, but what, what it seemed like you were, were even kind of talking about is at the start, you probably had some ideas of questions you might want to ask, but every time somebody's able to ask one layer deeper of a question, then they start to go, okay, now that, or that they're able to get answers to that, they want to go one layer deeper. So were you from the start saying, like, if somebody else were to, to try and do this, would you say that you're like, you must prepare yourself for your layer six questions at the start? Or is it more, hey, you, you know your first layer, your second layer probably of these questions. Mm -hmm. So prepare yourself for that. And then think about how you're going to serve those when other people ask that. Because, you know, uh, Jill asked this question today, mm -hmm. but Scott's going to have the exact same question about his channel the next day, right? And then, you, you know, so how do you think about balancing that and not going way too far ahead of yourself of I'm going to design, you know, this thing to be able to, you know, I'm going to design the horse buggy to be able to be uh, capable of uh, withstanding, you know, the forces that you need for flight. You're getting ahead of yourself in travel. You're not really, yes. you're going to be not able to design. Yeah. Yeah. So we we took a bit of a balanced approach. Like we had some really key use cases around demand, market sizing. And then we also had some really key use, use cases coming from some of our, our close stakeholders in organic search around like, help me understand, you know, not just organic search, but like paid search and where we rank. And so while we were addressing kind of some of the upper funnel um, questions about market demand and market sizing with a specific product, and we were starting to dig into like, what is the kind of like what we call like one SERP, one search engine result page or one search type products looking like, we started to realize like that there is a, a common denominator here around like, hey, this is kind of like search data. This is kind of, you know, we're working in a funnel here. And so what we realized is that, you know, looking at the insight that these products could drive in isolation were interesting, but looking at them together uh, really kind of unlock some of the trends we were seeing and then how we were, uh, the trends we were seeing from a bottoms up perspective and the opportunities that we were or weren't capturing from a tops down perspective. And we started referring some of our stakeholders to some of our other products on the team. And so after we had these, you know, kind of individual compelling products and we started to see the interplay between them, we developed more of a narrative for our stakeholders to be able to bridge the gap between the two of them. So when to use this one, when to use this one. And then, so that was like the really early, like, can we, can we get a win from a momentum perspective around the reason to be using these two in tandem? So that was kind of like the early, like, is there something there? Does this also make sense to our stakeholders? And then when we saw a little bit of that momentum pick up and some of that interest, and we got the benefit of, you know, the folks in search really giving us a hard once over on the way that we were talking about market demand and sizing. And we got the people who are interested in market demand and sizing, having a better understanding of whether or not we were capturing that in the impression data that's much more actual, much more tangible. 
we were like, okay, there is something here. So then we kind of took the next increment of work and we said, all right, if there is something here, we can either start to improve the front end, we can start to improve the back end. Like, which one do we want to do first? Um, so things about improving the front end is like in our market demand, we were talking about um, searches that weren't tagged with like Vistaprint or, you know, a aggregate competitor set as generic searches. In our uh, search products uh, with the channel data, we were calling that non-branded. So a front end optimization could be, hey, like, let's standardize our own language. Um, like, I need to point the finger at myself sometimes to be like, hey, don't you talk about standard language for a shared meaning? Like, why don't you do that? Um, so we could take some front end, like, let's try to make these feel more cohesive. We also thought about backend improvements. And I'm really lucky to have some awesome folks on my team um, who were able to say, this piece of data is actually used across both of these products. And I think we can make it much better if we build a component product that has some, some individual value, some intrinsic value, but its value is magnified when we apply it across the portfolio. So for instance, like a couple of our products were leveraging competitor data and we were going all over the business to try to understand like, who do you think a top competitor is? Like, why do you think a top competitor is a top competitor? Um, and so we were talking with country teams, our uh, research teams, our channel teams. And so we actually started to pull that together into one space as a component product to say, we're going to capture that information here. So all of the products that are referencing competitor data don't have to be hard coding these lists of top competitors everywhere. Um, and we have some really innovative stuff uh, going on in, in keywords and keyword mapping. So like we're improving the dimensions of the base queries that people are searching and then reapplying that back out to the portfolio to think about those keywords from a demand perspective. So we thought about some backend improvements like building component products, which have really unlocked um, the speed in which we can launch new features in the products that are really getting the most stakeholder engagement. Um, and we do have in our backlog some, you know, thoughts around like a front end, um, you know, more cohesive look and feel. And so we're kind of in this place where we're like, all right, we started with some compelling products. We asked our stakeholders and ourselves like, hey, in context, these feel like they should be working together. Um, and so, you know, we took that like, you know, you built a house, you built a shop, like you built this one data product. And we started to ask ourselves questions around like, hey, the person who like goes to this shop within the next couple of days pretty much always goes to this shop. So like, how do we make it easier for them to get from like product A, like shop A to product B, shop B? And you go from, you know, curating the data in your domain, like your speciality to figuring out how those work together to build a product to figuring out how your products work together like a neighborhood, right? Like how do we reduce the friction of seeing the way in which people engage with these things um, how are they related? How are they not? And how do we tell that story? Like, it's not just the customer experiences that we're attuned to, like on our website and in our, you know, external customer journeys. Like this was a, a little bit of an intrinsic look to say, like, how are our stakeholders navigating our products? Um, and what are their journeys? And like trying to help them work through those. Well, yeah, and exactly what you're talking, everybody within a domain is really focused on that domain. So 
they're not as focused as on the actual customer journey and how they interact with your organization instead of the domain. Uh, Andrew Padilla talked a little bit about that, that I get domain events, but at the same point, they're typically not just domain events. And so like there's spillover into the organization as a whole. And if you're trying to just focus ex exactly on this person interacted with my product, it's like, well, sure, they added you to the cart, but they added these three other things to the cart or they looked at these three other things and they chose not to pick two of those. So why and what happened in that, that like, could we have a better tie-in or a better lead-in? Yeah, in most situations, the the most successful customer journey is inherently across domain, right? Like that you've had someone visit on site, site is a common domain, that you've had someone place an order, transactions is a common domain, that you've then had, you know, material of some capacity delivered. So like whether it's manufacturing or whether it's, you know, just, you know, meeting commitments, like that quality tends to be, you know, a, a natural domain. And the same is true internally for stakeholders. So like if, if you have, you know, a stakeholder who, you know, is maybe a GM of a country team, right? Like their journey across data products inherently probably isn't going to sit in one domain either. Um, so we are trying to get to a place where, you know, we are making our products more easily accessible um, and work nice together, play well together but also trying to put our products in context um, with thought frameworks, right? So like, if you are asking yourself this question, like this is where you start, this is where you go. And so like, we've put, we've put some effort into saying, you know, this is the upper funnel product portfolio that we have. This is when you should look at, you know, the research coming out of our competitor uh, insights team in relation to our product. This is when you should look at, um, a transaction trend in relation to our product. Um, you know, we cover a certain part of, of that funnel, you know, that, that um, a lot of our research teams cover perspective like, or market perception. Then we cover a little bit of like market demand. We cover a little bit of, um, you know, market impressions, like how we're showing up in impressions and another domain, you know, may handle um, conversion rates or purchase rates, um, that kind of stuff. And so we just try to make sure that we've described what those handoffs looks like or brought comparisons of the domain um, of external domain data into our products. And it, it does kind of go back to interoperability. It's like, we'd love to bring transaction trends into our products so that you can see, you know, if we're generating this number of impressions um, from searches on a specific product, you know, can we bring in an item count, you know, to see whether or not like what that looks like if you go down the funnel, we're only able to do that because everyone in Vistaprint is using the product hierarchy, right? So that our, our channel, or sorry, our products, which talk about channel and talk about products and channel can then be trended together on the same chart and be able to be filtered on the same dimensions because the domain that's responsible for transaction data is also using the same product hierarchy. And that product hierarchy is being made available by a totally different domain, um, which handles product. So like the comparisons and the insight that we can give our stakeholders is richer because everyone has kind of been adhering to, you know, a standard or shared vocabulary. And 
this just kind of reminded me a little bit about uh, my conversation with uh, Mahmoud at ABN AMRO, where he was talking about um, that they kind of almost have a other people who it's, it's kind of like the, the recommendation engine for, you know, other people who, who added this to their cart, other people who did this search also added this, this additional dimension and that you can kind of start mm-hmm. to get there. It's, it's, we're, we're very much in the infancy about, uh, would you also be interested in this insight? And then, uh, Marisa fish, I keep coming back to her, um, conversation because she was talking about, when you actually do context exchange, right? When you are sharing data with somebody, why? What are you trying to accomplish? Are you trying to provide them the information so they can augment their own in, their own information and create their own insights? Or are you trying to share an insight and so that they can then say, okay, I'm going to create the so what? Or are you taking the insight and the recommendation, the so what, and that that you start to make that like encoded into what you're doing and that you're kind of explicit in here is what I'm trying to accomplish. And and I struggle with this because I tell people just FYI, because I'm like, I don't know what the output should be, but half of the people go, okay, here would be my expected output. But half the other people go, well, but why do I care? It's like, well, I don't know if you do. So like my, what I'm trying to do is, is exchange information some, or give you some context that might shape some so what, but I don't know your so what, and and I I shouldn't have to know your so what because then that means that everybody's kind of stepping on each other's toes. But we should also be data literate enough to be able to say, is this a so what insight? Is this something that's actually useful? But like exactly what you're talking about of if you don't have those handoffs, then getting those cross domain insights becomes massively difficult. Because you are doing this, I'm going to normalize this set of data and this set of data and this set of data, and I can only do A and B normalized in one way, and I can only do B and C and normalized in one way, and A and C, but I can't do A, B, C because that normalization is so complicated that I I just can't put those all together. So exactly what you're talking about of just remove so much of the burden from somebody going from... I have a question or I wonder to, yeah. oh, I have some insight. It might not be perfect. It might be they come back to you and say, we need more information on this. But it it tees them up to be able to, to say, can we answer this question now? No. All right. We need to do more work. But you're not like pre-answering everything for everybody. And I think that balance is difficult to strike. But that, that's kind of the thing that's been, you know, some it's it's been running through this whole conversation of building to this of of exactly what you're talking about of doing the work doesn't mean that you have to do 100% of the work but you set yourself up so that when you're doing incremental work it's not that you're redoing the same damn work yeah i think uh i think what we've found too is that you know there's there's a lot to be said for making sure that communication across domains are happening so that, you know, someone isn't building something that's like right on the edge that's so similar, but like they don't work together. Um, obviously, you know, as we were replatforming and we were we were rebuilding and we were kind of developing as a data and analytics team, as we were a relatively new team overall, um, you know, coming together, we we did have a lot of those, like this product solves this use case. And like that is a high priority use case. And like, you know, we were kind of in that mindset and, 
you know, we've delivered some really interesting products to the team, um, to the teams we support. I think, you know, we're, we're looking down a, a potential, you know, next step function change in the way that we mature um, our products and make them accessible to the business. Um, I, I think that's an absolute, you know, thing that we all need to be working towards, which is how our stakeholders are engaging with our products and what that experience actually feels like. Um, and how easy is it to go from one to the next in order to get to their so what, in order to answer their own questions. Because if we're if we're expecting the business to be able to develop their own so what, um, we need our products to be easy enough to use for them to formulate those opinions. And I think one of the things that like I just started, you know, really encouraging my team to do over this month, we've been doing a lot of stakeholder demos um, as some of our products are becoming a little bit more mature is to take some of our own medicine, right? Like actually walk through our products and say, like, I know that this is a stakeholder question. Um, I want to be using the portfolio in a way that answers this. Can I? Um, Cause it's, it's one thing to encourage people to use the products, ask them to think about it in a portfolio perspective. But if you're kind of missing a little bit here and missing a little bit there, like um, you kind of need to be, we need to be true to ourselves about the opportunities that we have to improve the customer experience, like in our products. Um, some of that is, you know, increased interoperability. Some of that is, you know, just an easier front end. Um, because again, if, if we have such a varied stakeholder set that we're not going to be able to hand deliver everyone a so what, because we also don't have as much business context as they do. We do have some responsibility to open up the door um, to say, we will support you as you engage in these new products to try them out ourselves every once in a while to road test them. Um, and to, again, just lower the barrier, um, just lower the barrier. Cause you know, I think that there are some really good specific use cases again, that we've we have executed against, but it is that philosophy of the most successful journeys are probably cross domain. Um, and so like, how easy have we made that? Um, how complete can we make that journey? I can't remember who said it, but they said your, your execs, if they're asking in domain questions, like your high level execs, then either you don't have a complicated business or they're not doing their job. Right. When you think about your kind of core team of execs, every core question is cross domain. Right. I mean, maybe something is within the marketing domain exclusively, but typically not even. But yes, it's it's like there isn't something the, the big, big questions are cross domain. So you have to set yourself up for that. But you kind of have to build towards that. You don't get to start from day one and saying we can answer all exact questions because it's a silly thing to try to serve until you've built out your kind of corpus of, of data quantum or data quanta that, that can serve that. So, yeah. Yes. Um, so yeah, we, I totally we, agree. We, we've covered a whole heck of a lot. Um, is there anything that we didn't cover that you think we should have or any way that you'd kind of want to wrap up the episode in general or. I mean, I guess just when you're thinking about, when you're thinking about interoperability, it's just playing nice, right? And that's 
that's about services, that's about data, that's about communication. Um, it's really kind of just explicitly saying like, my stuff has to work with your stuff for the betterment of everyone. Um, and as much as that's not, you know, a very specific way of thinking about it, uh, I would prefer to think about interoperability from my perspective as uh, a culture, um, which leads to systems that deliver better cross-domain results for both stakeholders and customers. Um, so as opposed to a development technique, um, again, I think it more uh, represents well in a, in a culture um, that's willing to have those open conversations, um, that's willing to engage in cross-domain complex conversations um, and really tackle those head on. And again, I guess a callback to taxonomy is the same for interoperability. It's the balance of standardization and flexibility. Not everything is going to fit um, and everything is going to change. So just hanging in there because it really is uh, something that once you get there, once you get to the point where it's like when you realize that like Netflix has jobs called taxonomist um, and they're building content based on the fact that like they're able to capture the amount of information about how we engage with their platform. Um, once you get to that level, like we're not all going to be a Netflix, but like the power is really easy to visualize when you talk about it at that scale. So like figure out what your use cases are, work towards a place where you have enough building blocks that interoperability becomes a tabletop, table stakes conversation, um, and you're doing the right things. Yeah, I, I think the the when you said my stuff has to play with your stuff for the betterment of everyone, there are, and if somebody's not willing to meet you somewhere near the middle, then you can kind of move on and come back to them and when they're ready to it. And, and if they're not, then you you look for sticks at that point, but start with carrots and compassion is kind of the way that I've started to, to, to use that phrase, because I think it is so much about like, hey, this is better for everyone. And we're going to make sure that you get your due for doing this work, that you're not just doing the work and it's invisible work, but that you're doing this work and you're getting rewarded for it. So yeah, I, I really like that. Um, well, I'm sure there's going to be uh, many people that would love to follow up with you uh, on a lot of different things, but where's the the best place? What would you like people kind of following up with you about? Yeah, please find me on LinkedIn. Um, I love conversations about taxonomy. Right now we're talking about in like marketing taxonomy, audience taxonomy specifically. Um, I absolutely have a passion for systems. Um, so if you are thinking about interoperability and maybe an early journey in that, um, I'm happy to talk about the ways in which like I talk to to my leaders and how we influence those conversations. And if people have had successes, I'd love to hear those too. Um, and I'm a big fan of data literacy. So if you're interested in that, uh, and again, lowering barriers to entry um, for other domains and stakeholders, those conversations are interesting too. Well, Jill, thank you so much for this. this so much for your time today. And, and as well, thank you everyone out there for listening. I'd again like to thank my guest today, Jill Maffeo, Senior Data Product Manager at Vista. You can find a link to her LinkedIn in the show notes as per usual. Thank you. Hopefully that interview episode was really useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show, from these episodes. Most have said they'd really love people to reach out to them. And please, as well, if you've got a minute, rate and review the podcast somewhere. It really is honestly super helpful for other people looking into kind of data podcasts to kind of get this in front of them. 
Data Mesh Radio is again provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It's produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. In April of 2023, I left Data Stacks, who were wonderful in getting the Data Mesh community stuff started, so give them a shout for streaming and real-time AI needs. But I left to start my own industry analyst kind of information as a service firm. Our offerings are affordable and you can do them on a one-off or a month-to-month basis. You know, read kind of throw it on the credit card. Don't worry about like going through purchasing and things like that. The services include lots of practitioner roundtables, you know, one-on-one data mesh kind of planning or feedback sessions and tailored introductions to other data mesh practitioners that are focused around your topics of interest. You know, what what are you actually running into challenges with? We also have some free programs around introductions and roundtables that people can kind of check out as well. Check the show notes or just go to datameshunderstanding.com for more info or helpful resources. As always, if you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do get in touch as well. And have a wonderful rest of your day. Now let's hear that funky outro music.